You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by MWI's Deputy Director, Jeremy Fox, who's a Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Army and has had an interesting career path. Jeremy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Tim. How'd you wind up in the Army in the first place? I ended up following my brother, Chris, uh, who ended up being a career officer. Followed him. Uh, he was my kind of my, my, my leading mentor coming out of high school, ended up going to Norwich University, uh, did four years ROTC there, and uh, commissioned in 2004. What'd you commission as? I was a branch detailed officer. I started my career as a infantry officer, and then right around the four-year mark, I transitioned to the Signal Corps. What was the infantry pipeline like, and had that been a dream for you? It was. It was uh, uh, something that I wanted to pursue. I enjoyed the uh, combat arms aspect coming through ROTC, had some really good teachers and mentors, um, and, and, and I thought that that would be a unique and exciting opportunity to, to, to start my career. As a branch detailed officer, you go through all of the training to be an infantry officer. Did you do the kind of traditional Ibolic, Ranger, Airborne, Air Assault Pipeline? Yeah, I, I got an app- opportunity to attend airborne school as a cadet, uh, so I knocked that out pretty early. And then after uh, I- IOBC at Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, progressed to ranger school, a short uh, recycle or two, and I was able to successfully navigate uh, all of the wickets at Benning, and I made it uh, forward to uh, 1st Brigade 101st after that in Fort Campbell. So this is 2004, 2005. We're in the midst of Iraq. What is your brigade doing when you check in? I checked in uh, right before Thanksgiving in 2005, and the brigade actually had uh, proceeded right before then to deploy to uh, the Saladin in Kirkuk province of Iraq in September of 2005. What was it like checking into basically an empty unit. That was unique. I showed up and reported to the rear D and quickly got integrated into, you know, the formation there. We did a short train up there, received our field gear, and because it was so close to uh, Christmas, they gave us a short break to go uh, go see family, and then we reported back right uh, right around 1 January for uh, for our trip overseas. 
When you got to Iraq, what was the first thing that went through your head? That, that was a really kind of surreal moment. Um, and, and obviously a lot of things kind of go through your mind. You're training up or, or you know, we, we graduated in 2004, but ever since, you know, we were sophomore in college, you know, that's when September 11th happened. We knew what we were getting into. So it, it was really kind of years and months of preparation to get to that moment. Um, we, we knew what we were heading into. We, you know, seen, uh, I watched the invasion of Iraq, you know, on TV, my junior year in college. So th there was no real, you know, missed opportunity. We knew what was going to happen. So getting to the 101st, uh, getting integrated and then finally making it all the way over to integrate into the, the unit was, was kind of a surreal moment, um, that, that, that had kind of been preparing for for a number of years. So I, I was excited to, to kind of get there and, and to, to really see what it was all about. The unit had deployed ahead of you. Did you go over as an individual augment, as a replacement? Did you go over as part of a reinforcement company? What was, what was that like? Um, I guess I would describe it as um, not necessarily replacements, but more augmentees. Uh, we were integrating in just as you would have folks rotate in or out of, of a unit. Um, at, at the time, a, a lot of the folks were stop loss, so they did not have the opportunity to depart the organization, um, but folks still rotated in. So I rotated in with uh, a group of about 20 to 25 soldiers from the brigade who, once we hit ground, were just pushed to the seven winds to integrate into our various units. And where did you wind up going? I ended up uh, coming in from... Uh, Kuwait, and we ended up going into Kirkuk, Iraq, uh, up in the north northern part of Iraq. And it was pretty neat that our battalion headquarters was actually on the air on the air base itself. So as soon as we landed, uh, just a few minutes later, I was greeted by battalion representatives, and we started in processing the battalion. And maybe a few hours later, company commander had swung by to pick me and, uh, and the FSO up. We came in at the same time and we were whisked away to Alpha Company to, uh, to integrate with the company. What was Alpha Company's daily routine like when you showed up? Alpha Company had uh, the site security of many of the towns and villages surrounding Kirkuk proper, uh, as well as a lot of the main MSRs and ASRs. So the main thing was uh, IED detection and prevention, as well as partnering with uh, Iraqi army and Iraqi military police in that area. As part of that partnering mission, had you received prior training on partnering or was it all, I'm going to be a platoon leader? I'd say that there was a little bit of training beforehand with regard to uh, customs and courtesies and dealing with counterparts, um, kind of the do's and do nots with regard to, uh, to just your average regular, you know, getting to know folks and um, how to be polite and, you know, respectful. And but at the same time, you know, what their mission was and, and how they were currently executing that. So it was a little bit uh, ad hoc as we continued to make progress uh, towards partnership with the Iraqi army and the, and the Iraqi police. Were you there as a platoon leader? Or were you there as a spare body in the company? I mean, how did, how did that reception work out? I landed, met the company commander, and the next day I became a platoon leader. That's a pretty quick pipeline. It was a, a unique indoctrination 
because I had uh, I, I was completing range school. I missed the train up. I had missed the CTC rotation. Um, I, I did not have the opportunity to bond with you know the the platoon sergeant or the squad leaders or any of the soldiers or fellow platoon leaders. Um, so it was a really foreign experience that was uh, you know it, I I don't know if there was anything else you could do. You just had to you were prepared for the moment and you had to go ahead and grasp it and, and jump right in. Your soldiers had been in Iraq at this point about three months. What had they been doing the site security mission? Yes, they had. So they had been doing the site security mission and you know, it, it was, it was, it was difficult for, it was challenging for me because the platoon leader that I replaced, he went on to become the company XO, which was great because I had an advocate that I could go and ask for, uh, for advice, but they had been through, um, they had been through a loss. They had been through, um, a few tough days and they had already bonded. So kind of coming in as the new second Lieutenant was, uh, challenging as the outside person coming in. I had to break down these barriers. I had to, you know, um, build relationships that had been completely non-existent. What was meeting your platoon sergeant like the first time? He was great. Uh, Sergeant first class, Brent McConnell, uh, he was the prototypical, you know, 18 and 19 year SAR first class, you know, vet who had had two or three platoon leaders before me. So, so there's nothing under the sun that he hadn't seen. So he was, uh, a, a great, um, you know, friend and mentor and, you know, partner for a, a blue eyed, you know, bushy tailed second Lieutenant coming in. So it was, I was really fortunate to partner with Sergeant First Class McConnell, and, and we instantly had a, a good, healthy respect for one another, uh, and, and were able to bond quite quickly. As the new platoon leader, what was your first month like? The first month um, was was busy. Uh, the you know I had to meet the platoon. We had to get into a a, a steady rhythm. Um, we were constantly patrolling. It was uh, a, a challenging time where. I was leading the platoon. We were conducting missions. We were rolling around, uh, integrating not just with the uh, Iraqi army and the Iraqi police, but also with local governance and, and, and you know town halls and mayors as well. So we were seeking out what their concerns were and trying to build that back and, and build relationships with the community as well. How much guidance or mentorship did you get from your company CO from your first sergeant? Company CO and the first sergeant, um, they, they had a, a calming presence. They had a, a great uh, team building attitude that, that really, you know, brought the entire company together. So uh, Alpha Company absolutely had a great esprit de corps um, and, and mission focused attitude. And the company commander uh, was, was certainly you know, that, that kind of big brother to all the lieutenants that, you know, you could bring him, um, any, any issues or concerns or, or just speak candidly for, you know, advice or guidance. Obviously you're giving him back briefs. You're giving him, you know, mission objectives as well. And he's directing traffic on behalf of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of targets and, and missions that they're coming down from the uh, from battalion, um, but but we had a really good relationship. First sergeant uh, has was the prototypical, um, you know, former Ranger Regiment first sergeant. You know, uh, steely-eyed soldier. He had a, a ton of experience, and the he he had a, a wonderful a wonderful grasp of, of mentorship of NCOs, um, and, and that was really helpful 
for you know for all the sergeants in the in the company and, and all the junior enlisted but it was very helpful for the lieutenants as well we could go to him he had all the answers and uh he was just a good veteran so it, it was a good opportunity for a new lieutenant to you know have be just be surrounded with this wealth of knowledge did alpha company keep that site security mission uh so we did not we actually after a few months we transitioned uh, our our company was opcon to a sister battalion um to combat uh some terrorist activity that was targeting oil pipeline uh west of our position so we were transitioned from uh second battalion over to first battalion for i think it was about three maybe three and a half months and then our company got put on on fixed site security 12 hours on 12 hours off um manning a raid tower securing oil pipeline uh and infrastructure within that within that area what was that transition's impact on your soldiers impact on you morale wise tactics wise i think morale wise it was it was kind of a downer um, beforehand, we had a little bit more freedom maneuver to travel around the sector, engage uh, with the local population, uh, really transitioning out to the West and, and taking on that new mission really effectively eliminated our ability to do that. We had one location with one mission and, and we couldn't really deviate from moving outside of that mission. Uh, so this, this pipeline that was coming down uh, fed really from north to south into the Beji refinery, um, which is one of the major sources of uh, petrol and, and, and oil in that area. And uh, they, they, you know, as part of the governance, uh, they, they wanted that secured. So we were tasked to uh, provide fixed site security. We, you know, they, they brought down the engineers, built up HESCOs and barriers. And I'd say it was maybe about a football field or bigger of a perimeter um, that had integrated uh, U.S. Army and Iraqi Army outposts um, surrounding this critical infrastructure. Fixed site security, 12 hours on, 12 hours op operations. What was the timeline that you and your platoon sergeant built to make that happen, and how did you integrate the Iraqis in that process? We were lucky compared to uh, the other platoons. Um, you really had three platoons. It was it ended up being two, two platoons that did 12 on, 12 off, and then the other platoon was augmented for other security missions to uh, to our sister battalion. So first and second platoon uh, were the ones that took the brunt of the fixed site security. First platoon just draw the, drew the lucky straw of taking the evening watch. So we arrived um, to infill our positions around 2200, and then we stayed there until 10 a.m. the next day. The good thing was that uh, we were out of most of the oppressive heat throughout the day, um, which was a little bit more advantageous to us and, and, and helped the morale of, of the troops, at least for that, that stretch of time. Um, our, our brethren that had the day shift, uh, they were miserable. <laughs> they, they, they were just hot and sweaty, and, and you could tell that they were just drained by the end of a shift. We had a little bit uh, of a cooler temp, so it was a, it was a little bit better for us, but uh, the, the lack of activity, the lack of ability to really engage with the local populace um, was minimal during that time. Were you getting probed frequently? Uh, we did. Um, within the, I'd say, less than four-mile trip from the FOB to our, our, uh, our site security, we got frequent uh, pressure plate IEDs, 
which were likely coming from, you know, local surrounding communities. Um, unfortunately, you know, we had uh, limited ability to really trace those back and to do a, a thorough search to to try and root out where, where that was coming from. Um, and then every once in a while, we got mortared as well. Pretty built up site, um, well known by um, the enemy uh, within the area. And, and, and we received once in a while, we'd get a, a, a point of origin and, and try and send out some guys to, um, you know, make contact, but uh, we, we were never successful in making that contact. While you're on shift as a platoon leader, you could sit in the COC, you can go out and walk around. What was kind of the balance and how did you drive those decisions? Our, our main CP within our, our security uh, site security there, we had a raid tower. So we had um, IR vision up and down the main MSR overwatching all the infill routes coming to our sector as as well as you know all the other uh walkways as well and then and then really the local town as well that was adjacent to us um so you had myself uh the the fso and uh a couple junior soldiers take turns um monitoring the raid tower for any id emplacers or any stalled vehicles on the side of the road uh, just maintaining constant overwatch of, uh, of the MSRs. Um, and then between the platoon sergeant and myself, um, we would take turns shaking out the troops, you know, doing perimeter searches, um, engaging with the Iraqi army that was integrated into our uh, protective posture, and, and really just trying to keep morale up. Did the Iraqis maintain their own COC or CP, or, or did they integrate into yours? Um, they, they, they really didn't do either. I, I, I think they had soldiers that were on call and, and, and some that were integrated within the area. Um, it was really maybe a squad that they dropped off whenever they had the opportunity. And, uh, and we would integrate them and put them out on the, on the security line with our, integrated with our troops. What was the internal layout of this football field size area? We had uh, some concrete towers, some... Um, HESCO barriers. We had other uh, gun truck positions uh, with our 50 cal and our 240s, as well as our LRAS systems, again, overwatching main MSRs coming in and going out. Um, but it was really, as we were going around the perimeter, it was a series of, you know, overlapping and intersecting fields of fire between these fighting positions, um, between the, uh, the U.S. soldiers and the Iraqi soldiers as well. What's an LRAS system? So the LRAS system is a, uh, a thermal site that sits on top of uh, the Humvee and, and helps detect heat signatures. Uh, we also have PAS-13s on top of our um, machine guns that, that, that do a similar thing, although the LRAS goes a bit further. When you went out on these, you know, kind of walking the lines, missions at night, make sure your soldiers are up, the Iraqis are up, everything's going well, Who'd you take with you? Typically, it was just me and the interpreter. Um, we would go out randomly, you know, um, kind of uh, unannounced, so that way we could uh, just keep an eye on the perimeter, keep an eye on the soldiers, make sure everybody's doing the right thing, you know, health and welfare, see what you need, make sure you got enough water, 
we could bring you know MREs you know out to somebody if they needed it. Um, but it was really just a, a health and welfare. See what's going on. Make sure everybody's paying attention. Uh, you know, leaders are doing the right thing at each level. The site you're guarding is next to an Iraqi village. How often did you interact with them, and what were those interactions like? If similar to um, our other partnerships, um, when we were back closer to Kirkuk, we reached out to the Iraqi police, we reached out to the Iraqi army, we reached out to uh, the local town mayor, uh, local security forces, letting them know that we're there letting them know what our mission is and, and that we're here to help. Um, we always try to um, develop relationships with any of the towns that we were in um, so that way we could build our network. Uh, there was a great bakery that, that was right on the corner. They baked fresh bread. We'd always go down there with some dinar and, and make sure that we you know, got some fresh bread, but we're also trying to spread some money around and, and help the economy as well. Um, but yeah, we, we, we tried as much as possible to uh, to build those relationships. Your security station was probably a new introduction to their daily routine. Did that wind up causing any problems with the local populace? With regard to traffic patterns, you know, that was rerouted pretty quickly. But every once in a while, you'd get some foot traffic, um, probably from some travelers, you know, who had been away for a while, and they were trying to make a cut through uh, or a shortcut back to you know, back to home base. Uh, this one time uh, we got a call that we had a foot traveler coming in a little bit too close to one of our fighting positions. It was about 100 meters away and uh, was, was really kind of walking directly towards uh, one of our up-armored Humvees. We were concerned that, you know, that suicide vests had been a tactic that had been used successfully in the past in that area. So we were really cautious about this gentleman getting too close to our formation. How did your soldiers respond? Our soldiers were regularly reinforced uh, the, the rules of engagement and the levels of escalation uh, with regarding force, appropriate force, and, and how we could uh, mitigate that situation. Um, with regard to this gentleman, he appeared to be uh, a senior citizen. We were unable to determine whether he had poor eyesight or uh, perhaps was losing his hearing. And he was not deviating his course with, uh, with the traditional you know, waving of arms, uh, yelling, um, and other type of uh, escalation measures to get his attention. What sort of information were you getting as the platoon leader at this time? I got a call from the platoon sergeant that uh, that they had spotted an individual walking a little bit too close to our perimeter, and uh, and I as soon as I heard that, uh, platoon sergeant was already over there, and I went to link up to him to see what was going on. How did you, your platoon sergeant, or the soldier react? Uh, platoon sergeant, you know, gave guidance to uh, down to the squad leader and. Uh, they effectively managed it. They, they monitored the situation. They continued to, uh, to notify and, and get a hold of this individual. And ultimately, um, they, they had to fire a few warning rounds. Uh, I'd say about 10 to 15 meters away from where the individual was going, but well within his, his line of sight. Uh, and, and that was a successful employment of uh, a, a non-lethal means to get this gentleman's attention 
we finally determined that he uh, was aware of his surroundings and, and deviated his course. So we were, we were thankful that, um, that that was resolved uh, with no further heightened tensions. When you're out doing these line checks with your interpreter, what's going through your head? How do you make sure you're, you know, kind of nothing sneaks up on you and you're not sneaking up on the soldiers and being presented in their eyes as the enemy? Uh, the soldiers knew that we would come out, you know, every so often. Um, again, we're, we're bringing lickies and chewies. Sometimes we're bringing, you know, water, um, you know, passing around the can of dip or whatever, uh, trying to just keep the morale of the troops up. Um, but it's also, you know, the platoon leader responsibility to ensure everybody's doing the right thing, maintaining security, whether they're constituting a rest plan, um, making sure everything is, is really just kind of on point. Um, in, we didn't have any issues with, uh, with the U.S. soldiers, but every once in a while, we'd really have to shake out the, um, the Iraqi troops that were integrated into our line. We wanted to make sure that they were doing the right thing um, and that they were staying attentive as well. Was your interpreter an Iraqi or was he an American? Uh, no, he was a, he was a local uh, interpreter. We had had him um, for a number of months. He was a, a trusted individual and, and a good member of our team. What was his role when he was out walking the lines with you? Uh, really, you know, his interpreter <laughs> roles. Um, he was a good second set of eyes and ears, particularly when it came to uh, interacting with the Iraqi soldiers. He could pick up on social gestures and or nonverbal cues that, that maybe we would, we would oversee. Mm-hmm. But this one time we were out doing perimeter checks. It was about zero one, uh, so it was very early. It's near pitch pitch dark. Um, we had already checked a few positions. We knew, you know, the soldiers were doing the right thing. Everybody's up. Everybody's active. Everybody's monitoring the sector, um, taking care of business. And we knew we needed to go check on the next position. Uh, it was an Iraqi army checkpoint uh, within our perimeter. And, and we were really just heading over there to, to make sure that, you know, that they were good and that, see if they need anything. As we get over there, we could tell that there was a lack of activity. And we ended up finding that there was about five or six of them that had all bedded down for the night and, uh, and, and were sleeping on duty. So uh, Turpin and I, we, we engaged them and, and tried to shake them out and say, hey, guys, you know, you're not here just to sleep. You know, you're here to help us pull security, um, you know, and, and, and we need you to kind of kind of plug back in. Um, the location of their checkpoint was right on the side of a little wadi. And if I guess if you if I could describe it, there's the the town runoff of uh, of waste from the nearby town, whether that's, you know, human whether that is um, any other wastewater, oil, anything else really coming out of the town was coming through this wadi. And there was a little bit of a footbridge, uh, a stone footbridge, a little walkway that, that traversed and, and went over the wadi. And then the Iraqi uh, checkpoint was right on the other side. So uh, my interpreter and I, we, we, we walked over and we're engaging with these guys and, and they're waking up and, you know, um, we're just having a good conversation, making sure that they're good, make sure they have everything they need. And I decide to take off my helmet and, you know, just kind of to engage them uh, a little bit more sincerely. 
and uh, and to kind of build that rapport. So I take off my helmet and I, I sat down on the edge of the uh, the footbridge, uh, you know, a, a little stone walkway, maybe a foot and a half high. So I sit down and, you know, through uh, through interpreter, we're still, you know, having a good conversation and, and checking up on the guys. And my interpreter goes to sit down next to me. And it was, like I said, it was about 1 a.m., pretty dark. He misjudged, uh, I guess, how close we were to the edge. And he ended up uh, falling into the wadi backwards with his body armor and his helmet on. How deep is the wadi? I didn't initially know, but I could tell that he fell probably a good five or six feet. Um, and, and as soon as he went in, I kind of instinctively knew that he wasn't coming back up. Uh, just through you know prior conversation and, and, and you know relationship building with him uh, over the last months, I, I knew he wasn't a swimmer. You know, a lot of, not a ton of swimming pools in Iraq, um, and, and I could tell that you know he was instantly in trouble. What did you do? It may have been poor judgment of mine, but I immediately threw down my rifle, ripped off my gear, and I dove in after him. Uh, had I had a little bit of, uh, of, of better tactical patience, I, I, I may have jumped on the radio to signal for help, but um, I instinctively just kind of jumped in after him and, uh, and quickly found myself, quickly found myself uh, up to my eyes in, uh, in wastewater. When you hit the wastewater, is that when that sense of, oh, I made a mistake happened? Or was it, you know, is this the hindsight of 15 years? No, uh, at, at that moment, I, I, I was still, you know, my adrenaline, my adrenaline was pretty pumped at that time. I, I, I knew that he was uh, having an issue. Uh, he had gone in the water and, and he did not resurface. Uh, I, I didn't know if he was caught with anything. I didn't know if, uh, if the weight of his body armor, anything, you know, prevented him from resurfacing. Um, so instinctively, I jumped in and I was able to swim down and pull him up. I, I, I guess if I'm estimating the, uh, the depth of this wadi may have been eight or nine feet um, with, with uh, you know, 45 degree angles on either side with, with mud and sludge and uh, kind of garbage just kind of lining the canal. Um, but I dove in, I was able to pull him up. We ripped off his helmet, we ripped off his body armor and i was able to help pull him to the side of the wadi you know with uh with just a i don't know kind of stroke you'd call it just uh just kind of a, a hail mary you know get him over to the to the side doggy paddle so as i'm doing that the uh the iraqi army that we partnered with they're they're having you know an oh crap moment as well and they immediately sprung into action to help us out might not have been the best method, but what they suggested was that they lower down one of their battle buddies to serve as a sort of a human ladder so we could try and pull ourselves up uh, across their battle buddy's body all the way back up. So again, if, if, if you can envision, they've extended him down by his arms and, and he's hitting us with his feet. So maybe six foot down, 
or so is is where the water level is to, to to where the top of the wadi is so as soon as we get over to the side um i'm pulling the interpreter over he is starting to grab on to you know this 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 lowered you know iraqi soldier so that way we can try and climb up about halfway up they lose grip and both my interpreter and the Iraqi army soldier both fall in the water on top of me. And now instead of two of us, now we have three people in the water. When you saw them lose the grip and that Iraqi soldier and your half-rescued interpreter come sliding down, what did you think? That was really when the panic started to set in. Um, Instead of just having, you know, one, uh, one drowning victim, I essentially had two. At that point, the interpreter and I had been in the water for probably about a minute, minute and a half, um, with him struggling and me trying to pull him to the side. Once they both fell back in, that's really when my panic set in. The interpreter fell back in and ended up on top of me, and, and we both submerged. Um, just by the position of our body, he ended up being in back of me. And, you know, as, as, as a drowning victim would, he latched onto me to try and propel himself up. As he did so, I went further under and, uh, and it was at a disadvantage because he had my back. You're six feet under wastewater. You've got the interpreter on your back. Where's the other Iraqi soldier? Do you even know? Thankfully, the other Iraqi soldier was uh, was rescued by his buddies, and uh, instead of lowering another person down, they tied their sleeping blankets together and threw it down as a little bit of a, a rescue rope. So they were able to pull him out, and uh, and and thankfully, you know, I didn't need to uh, waste any energy trying to rescue that other individual. How did you get your interpreter off of you? So at that moment, he is pushing me down from behind, and we're both submerged underwater. It was at that moment that I thought I might not make it out of here. Uh, we had been in the water, I'd say, maybe two minutes at that point, um, but the adrenaline was rushing the whole time, and it was wearing off. Um, fatigue started to set in. And, uh, and I was really getting concerned that, you know, this, this was beyond my control, beyond the ability that, uh, that, that I could help. Um, and, and it was at that one moment that we were both underwater that, you know, I, I guess I had the flash before my eyes of, you know, I made it all the way <laughs> through the first six months of this deployment, um, dodging mortar attacks and IEDs and I might not make it out of here and I might be I might drown in Iraq as opposed to you know getting engaged by the enemy how did you wind up getting him off uh, so luckily um, I had had uh, life-saving experience and and was a certified lifeguard um, going through high school and college so I was familiar with some of the life-saving techniques, which really probably gave me the initial uh, instinctive reaction to jump in after him in the first place. So 
I knew that what I had to do was distance myself from the drowning victim. And because he had me from the back, I knew I needed to create separation. The only way that I could do that was to wrestle myself so that we were face to face. And then from there, I picked my knees up to the center of my uh, chest and I kicked off him as hard as I could directly uh, square in his chest. So that created enough space for me to swim away. You swim away, you've kicked him back. How did he react to that and what did you do in response? I surface, I'm able to catch my breath. He does not resurface. And at that point, um, I was exhausted, I was panicked. And at that point I started calling out for help. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, if I had had a little bit more clarity, um, I would have radioed for help initially. Um, but you know, in the heat of the moment, I didn't, I, I, I just jumped in. So I resurface, I start calling for help. And luckily about 25, 30 meters away was, uh, one of our fire teams who was in their, you know, in their security position and Sergeant Helfer goes, Hey, I think the PL's in trouble. I hear something. I think the PL's in trouble. So I'm sitting there treading water and uh, Sergeant Helfer and Specialist Bowerman come running over and I could just see like the look in their eyes. They're like, oh shit. Oh crap. The PL's in trouble. And before I can even say anything, Sergeant Helfer ripped off his gear and he is in my face in the water in my face saying, grabbing my shoulder saying, hey, sir, I got you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to, I'm going to help you out. And I tried to be as calm as possible. And I said, Sergeant Helfer, I'm fine. But our interpreter is, is underneath us. What did Helfer do? Helfer just gave me the most dumbfounded look, uh, because as he came over, he could only see me, uh, in the water kind of struggling to stay up. He had no idea that, that, that the interpreter was also um, in trouble at that point. So he looked at me with a dumbfounded look, like, I can't believe this. And he was able to go down, swim down, grab interpreter Jacob, swim down, grab the interpreter. And then together we were able to pull him over uh, to the side, to the edge of the wadi. Specialist uh, Bowerman, mobilized the rest of the Iraqis that were right there. A, he called on the radio and said, hey, uh, we need some help over here at this wadi. So that brought, that brought the rest of the cavalry down. But, uh, but Bowerman was the immediate on-site kind of coordination to, uh, to throw down the blankets and pull uh, each one of us out one by one. You get to the top of the wadi. You've climbed this 45 degrees. You've gone under twice. Well, really, it was just a, a, a exhaustion had had taken over at that point, and and I wouldn't say I collapsed, but I, I needed to take a knee. I needed to take a breath. Um, I wanted to check on uh, the interpreter because I knew he was coughing up a bunch of stuff at that point. Um, but I was I was thankful that he was he was breathing under his own uh, under his own ability. Uh, so I checked on him. I checked on uh, the other gentleman, um, the other ar Iraqi army soldier that had been in as well. He was doing fine. Um, and at that point, we, I just needed to take a minute to, to regain my composure. What was your platoon sergeant's reaction? 
he was just happy, you know, that, that everybody was okay. Um, I envisioned that I envisioned that he may have been a little bit dumbfounded by the situation. Um, but, uh, but he was just relieved that, you know, everybody was okay. And, and you know, obviously, you know, he took, he took charge right away, you know, making sure that, you know, the medic got down there. He was checking out all the, all the dudes that were in the water and making sure everybody, you know, got some antimicrobials and had enough water to kind of just flush out and, and reset. But, uh, yeah, it, it took me a little time to just kind of regain my composure and, and, and bring my, myself back to neutral. As you were coming down off that adrenaline high and being in the water, how did your body physically react? It, it, was, it wasn't too bad. Um, I, I think I was able to, to regain my strength quite quickly. A um, couple of ribbits, a couple of Gatorades, you know, you're, you're back in the fight. Um, so it really just took a little bit of time to just, like I said, get back to neutral, and, and then I was good. The, uh, the concern was that it was only about 1.30 at this point, and we still had another nine and a half hours to go. <laughs> on this on this uh on our sector so um it was really just getting things back to normal as soon as we were we were good um you know the inter uh, I, I sent the interpreter down to go get some rest because i knew he was he was hurting um but you know we called up um to to relay the situation hey we had a little bit of an incident everybody's okay um you know we're just flushing some fluids right now so uh, almost immediately after, you know, within, you know, an hour or so, you know, everybody's back doing their job. Um, you know, we, we didn't really have the luxury to get pulled off the line or anything like that, you know, and, and we wouldn't have asked that. Um, we were just trying to get back to normal. Did you have a spare set of camis? I did not. I think that got a couple of water bottles and I was out, I was able to clean myself up as best as possible. Um, and I think I, I, I took off my, my blouse, put that in the back of the Humvee, and, and I just wore the T-shirt and the body armor the rest of the day. When you got back to the company CP, what was their reaction? When I got back to the CP, you know, we, we had given a, a, a short patrol brief back to the, the CEO and the leadership. Hey, we had an issue, um, you know, you know, interpreter, you know, fell in the wadi, we had to jump in and take him out. Uh, I probably did a poor job, you know, conveying the significance of the event. Um, because again, it, at that point, you know, it had been resolved for, you know, over 10 hours. So um, it, it was just, it was pretty ho-hum, kind of, you know, okay, is everything okay? Sure, you know, back to normal. You mentioned it earlier, you'd gone from dodging IEDs and dodging mortars to almost drowning in, in this wadi. Was that kind of the most frightful moment of the deployment for you? I think that moment uh, was a little frightening, but more of a surreal experience for me in that I, I, I had a little bit of uh, trepidation for my own you know, mortality. But, but I was really concerned about the interpreter. Um, we had had other situations where, you know, soldiers got hit with IEDs and, and some other hairy situations. And that, those, you're just not in your control. Like you have to, you're at the whim of, of, uh, of the enemy and, and, and how you react to that situation. Um, I knew that wasn't the case with this in particular situation. 
um, it, it was just I was just concerned for um, the other guys. But uh, yeah, like you said, it was a surreal moment um, when you kind of face to face with your own, you know, mortality. And uh, I was super thankful to, you know, to uh, to have moved past that situation and, and not really have to deal with that again. Uh, it was the only time I think I'd ever experienced out of, out of two combat tours where I was in I was in a situation that I, I, I thought I might not get out of. It was a it was a humbling experience. Um, certainly, you know, made me give time to to think about what's important and and uh, you know obviously you're you're sitting there and you're in a combat zone and you're just you know as a platoon leader my 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 main focus was to take care of the platoon and make sure that all the soldiers got back safely and uh, and that meant the interpreters as well so. Uh, I was very thankful that we were able to get out of there, you know, as safely as we did. Jeremy, I want to thank you for this unique story. You know, obviously drowning in the desert, something most of us don't think about as, as a reality, but we certainly did lose soldiers and interpreters in Iraq to, to drowning. So thank you for sharing your story. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.